This passage comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 7 to 19. So you can follow along up here. It starts, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterwards, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voice saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Happy Thanksgiving. Um, I hope you had a good one. Uh, for us, Thanksgiving is mostly about family time. And I was so glad. I'm not a big turkey person. So when Arlo was like, can we have steak instead? I was like, yes, we can definitely have steak instead. Uh, but in light of this holiday, uh, we wanted to take a break from our series through Acts and look at this idea of gratitude. Now, when you do like a quick word search in Bible Gateway for the word thanks, what you find is something pretty interesting. If you take out the Psalms, the word thanks only occurs in the Bible about 100 times. Now, if you type in similar words, words like faith or love, you'll notice that those occur much more. Faith comes out about 500 times and love comes out about 700 times. And so this raises a question, what is the role of gratitude or thanks in the life of faith? Is it something as essential as faith and love? Or is it this optional nicety that we can do when we feel like it? And in this passage, what we have are actually two different settings. In the first setting, Jesus is teaching about thankfulness. And in the second one, we have a story that demonstrates what thankfulness actually looks like. Now, these two stories were originally probably unrelated, but Luke deliberately places them together because it's in this juxtaposition that we discover the true power of what it means to have a thankful heart. So with that, I just wanted to lift up a quick prayer and then go into our passage. Dear God, we just thank you so much for giving us this time. And we are in desperate need of you, uh, not just for providing for us, but for opening our eyes to see all the ways you've poured out your mercy, your love, your kindness, and your grace upon us. And God, I pray that rather than just trying to get back to this other goal or these other standards that we have in our lives, that you would shape this church, that you would speak into this church, that you would pour out your spirit into this church, so that the thing that we long for most of all is more of you. We thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Every morning, um, Arlo and I get ready for school, and then we hop in the elevator, go down, and in our building is the nicest door lady that you've ever met. She smiles, she opens the door for you, and every morning she says something very nice to Arlo. Arlo, you look beautiful today. Oh my goodness, Arlo, did you just get bangs? Fantastic. Arlo, your uniform is so cute. 
And every day, uh, Arlo does the same thing. She buries her head into my like jacket, looks the other way, and just keeps on walking. And I say, Arlo, don't you have something to say? And she goes, thank you. And then she keeps on walking, right? Now, why do I keep insisting that she say thank you? Uh, for most of human history, uh, the world was divided between upper class and lower class. And lower class was known for its barbaric behavior. Um, they would blow their nose on their jackets when they're eating dinner. They would grab the tablecloth and just wipe away the stuff that was there. Anytime there was common food, they would reach into the middle, grab something with their hands and start eating it. There's notes in Germany where were people eating food with bones that they would suck the bones clean and then throw them back into the common dish. <laughs> but this all changed in the 16th century as wealth increased. As wealth increased, lifestyle increased, as lifestyle increased, there is much more interaction between the various social classes, and this led to what's called the reformation of manners. We can't let people keep living like this. There needs to be a different way for people to interact. So people looked for different models on how to act, and the places that they looked were royal courts. They looked at the French courts, specifically of princes and kings, and said, this is a standard that we should use for how we act to one another. Models became something that we drew from this higher echelon of society, and the word that we use today to describe it speaks to that origin. We say he is very courteous, or we're talking about courtesy, and you see the word court appear in that word. We are drawing the way that we should act from the courts, and now manners are something that are used to divide people who are polite from people who are rude, people who are thoughtful from people who are brash, people who are good from people who are bad. And what that means for thank you is thank you is less about having a grateful heart or a grateful attitude, and it's more about having the right manners. And I know this is true because when Arlo buries her head into my jacket and I say, hey, say thank you, what I'm mostly concerned about is that the other people around don't think that she's a rude little girl. Specifically, if I'm being honest, I don't want them to look at her Asian face and go, oh, this girl doesn't belong here because she doesn't know how to act. So I go, work on your manners. And I also know this is true for my life because anytime I do a kind thing, like even the most basic thing, I hold the door open for somebody and the person goes by and doesn't say, thank you, I mumble under my breath, you're welcome. <laughs> this is supposed to be an act of kindness, an act of generosity. Who cares if they say thank you or not? But in my mind, when they don't, they go, oh, this person is a rude uh, barbarian and they don't deserve to be a part of society. Thank you in our world has a lot to do with courtesy and manners, but it can also be code for something else. There's a, a writer named Deepak Singh, and he wrote an article for The Atlantic, and he grew up in a town in North India, and in North India, you rarely say thank you. If you do, it's the most serious and solemn occasion, and he had been living in the United States for about 10 years, and he was shocked at how often people said thank you, and he counted one day. He goes, I must have said thank you 50 times between breakfast and lunch. And one of the weirdest situations where he found people said thank you was when they would invite you over for dinner. You'd go to their house, you'd eat all of their food, you'd drink all of their drink, and at the end of the day, they'd say, thank you so much for coming over. And he'd be like, why are you thanking me? Like, you're the one that did all the work. And after a couple of times of going through this, he realized what that meant. Thank you for coming over means it's time to get out of my house. <laughs> it's time for you to leave. Sometimes thank you doesn't even mean thank you. And as these people are starting to research more and more what a culture of gratitude looks like, they are starting to analyze the language that we use around thank you to see what deeper values lie underneath. 
And you will probably not be shocked to learn that American values that undergird thank you are economic and transactional. Thank you. I owe you one. How can I ever repay you? I appreciate you. I'll get you next time. These are all economic terms that show that what we're actually doing is keeping track of who benefits us in society, how we can pay them back in the future. And if you've ever like planned a wedding and kept track of the wedding gifts, you know this is true. There's like a spreadsheet, there's an amount, there's an address, and you're trying to keep track of who helped us out so that we can pay them back in the future. And this economic understanding of thank you is ingrained in the way that we operate in society. And I can tell that exists in my mind because of this thing that happened. Um, many, many years ago, my mom and dad were flying to Korea. They were on Korean Airlines. And as they're on this flight, something must have happened where this stewardess um, opened up the overhead bin and a piece of luggage fell and hit her in the head. And suddenly she was like bleeding from her head. And they're like, I think we got to do an emergency landing because there's this like, we don't know what's going to happen with this lady. But then they went on the loudspeaker and go, um, is anybody here a doctor? And my dad was a doctor and he's like asleep, like, <laughs> like, and then my, my mom like pokes him in the side, go, get up, get up. They need a doctor. He goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. So he goes over and he goes, hey, what's going on? And he goes, oh, this stewardess has all this blood coming out of her head and we have to do this emergency landing. He's like, oh, no, 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 it'll be fine. Can you get me an emergency kit? He gets the emergency kit and he puts seven uh, stitches into her head. And then afterwards, she's like, oh my goodness, thank you so much. And when they land in Korea, everybody who worked on the plane got out of the plane, lined up outside of the gate, and as my dad exited, they bowed and said thank you. Later on, they sent us this very nice blanket from Korean Airlines. They sent us a miniature plane. They sent us this nice letter written by the captain himself. And as my mom was telling me this story, the only question I had was, did they offer you free tickets, <laughs> right? Because it's economic. And my mom says, after my dad sewed up this lady's head and kept the plane from having to land, they offered him business class. And then he's like, what about my wife? And they're like, no, there's not enough space. <laughs> and if it were me, I'd be like, well, maybe we should take it and maybe take turns. But he's like, no, no, no. If you're not going to offer it to my wife, then it's not worth it. Economics undergirds the way we understand gratitude. If you do something nice for me, I should do something nice for you. Now, there's nothing wrong with this way that we, uh, of the way that we understand gratitude. I want my daughter to be courteous. I want her to know the code of when it's time to get out of someone's house. I want her to keep track of the fact that she did not make it on her own, but so many people have helped her to get where she belongs. But that is not at all what Luke is talking about when he's talking about gratitude. In the first story between verses 7 and 10, Jesus is using this idea of thank you to point out the way the world is as it should be. And he uses a very similar and familiar scenario in that time between a master and a servant. And imagine there's a servant out working hard in the fields all afternoon. He comes home. And Jesus says, wouldn't it be ridiculous if when he comes home, the master says, you've worked so hard, have a seat. Here's a whiskey, here's a TV guide, here's a, a, a laptop, do whatever you want. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your service. And Jesus says, no, that doesn't happen at all. Instead, the master says, keep on serving. And in verse 9 and 10, he says, does the master thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that was commanded you, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Jesus uses thank you to show what the relationship between us and him ought to be. 
He is the master. We are the servants. We are not equals. We serve him not because it's good for us, not because um, we're trying to feel better about our lives, not because it's some luxury activity or a hobby that we can do. We serve him because that is our duty and it's what by his nature he deserves. So as we do this, we should not expect God to say thank you and say, come on, sit with me, have a meal with me. This is the world as it should be. But this teaching is quickly countered and challenged by the story that happens next. And it gives us a glimmer of what the world could be like. And that happens in verses 11 to 19. The first thing that we see in verse 11 is that Jesus is in this in-between place. It says he's in between Samaria and Galilee. And Samaria is the land filled with people who are left behind during the exile and intermarried with the other people from the surrounding nations. Jews consider them to be half-breeds or not true Jews. And religiously, their situation within Judaism was very precarious. Do they belong or do they not belong? So when Jesus is in this in-between place, he's in a place between clean, unclean, pure, impure, true, and tenuous. And this in-between zone is reflected in the 10 people that approach him next, 10 lepers. Now, for a long time, people thought that leprosy was the same thing as Hansen's disease, which is a bacterial infection that attacks your skin and your nerves. If it's left untreated, eventually you end up losing all feeling in your extremities and start losing parts of your body, even you can go blind. But as you look at the text, as you look at the history, as you look at the biological data, what you notice is that leprosy in the Bible is not just Hansen's disease, although it probably includes it, but it's any type of skin disease that causes a separation between you and somebody else. And, you know, in high school, I had, like, all this uh, acne. So I was like, oh, God, I wish I had, like, been in high school during COVID because then I could just wear a mask and cover up half of my face. <laughs> that would have been one positive part to it. But even that benign level of skin rupture creates a separation where you don't want to look people in the eye. You don't want to be close to them. And for the first time in history, what we understand is the power of this type of thinking about the world. In the book of Leviticus, leprosy was a major cause of concern because it was contagious. And for the first time in 100 years, we understand contagion in a way that most people have not. The world outside is filled with germs. All of us have probably at some point in the last couple of years have had to quarantine where we had to separate ourselves from our everyday relationships, where we experience a certain type of loneliness or anxiety or even exhaustion from going through that experience. And not just that, but the things that used to be so ordinary start to become tedious and even dangerous. And so I don't know if you remember this, but like the first couple months of the pandemic, there was this video that circulated where you're supposed to wash all of your groceries. So you got your groceries, you took them out, you Clorox wiped the outside, you washed them in warm water, you set them on this side of a piece of tape so you could tell what was clean and what was not clean. What could be simpler or more basic than just getting groceries and eating it? Now, all of a sudden, this thing that's supposed to nourish you becomes something that can contaminate you and cause you to go into isolation. And these lepers, who know how long they've been living like this? Maybe months, maybe years, and it's understandable that they have been separated from their families. They had to leave, move outside of town. And now all of a sudden, they hear that Jesus is coming. They go, this might be our last chance. And in verse 13, they cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And Jesus hears them, and he says, go to the priest. And while they're going, something miraculous happens. They are healed. 
Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, our society is infiltrated with gratitude. We, we say thank you for the most benign things. Hey, how you doing? Good, thanks. <laughs> they just ask how you doing, and they don't even care how you're doing, but we still say thanks. And in that society, in this society, it's very strange that only one person comes back to say thank you. What about the other nine? What's wrong with them? Are they just ingrates? One thing that we see in the second passage is it's suffused with Levitical logic. If you look, the lepers are following what Moses told them to do. When you have leprosy, you have to separate yourself from your family. You have to go outside of the town. You have to change your clothes. You have to cover the lower part of your face with a mask. You have to keep distance from people and shout unclean, unclean, and hope that they'll have mercy on you. But not only that, Jesus himself is following this Levitical logic because he says, go to the priest. The priest is the one who's supposed to look at you, say whether you're clean or unclean, and then declare that you can come back into the community. But this is not the only way that this logic is playing out. In the book of Leviticus, leprosy is not just some contagious disease that you have to be uh, worried about because you might catch it. Leprosy symbolizes something deeper. The skin is a natural barrier between what's inside and what's outside. And when there's a cut in it, like that stewardess received on the airplane, there's a violation in the order. The inside stuff is starting to come outside. So when you have leprosy, or when you have something that's oozing, or when you have something that's bleeding, or when you have inside stuff coming out, it represents a breach of God's holiness. And one way to repair this, the way that you should repair this, is with sacrifices. And so when you check Leviticus 13 and 14, a healed leper is supposed to do something very specific. They're supposed to offer a guilt offering, a sin offering, and a burnt offering. All three of these offerings, when they work together, they work to restore you to your old life in a specific geographic way. The first one lets you come back into the camp. The second one lets you come back into the tabernacle. And the third one allows you to rejoin your family. The emphasis on the book of Leviticus for a healed leper is on getting your old life back. You are away from your family and now all of a sudden you're healed. If you want to be back to your old life, this is how you do it. Guilt offering, sin offering, and burnt offering. And when the nine lepers who are healed just keep on going along their way, they're following a logic that is familiar to them. This is the thing that we should do. I can't wait to go back and see my family again. And this is a completely understandable impulse. You know, Jen and I got uh, COVID like a week apart. And then Arlo got COVID a couple days later. So I started quarantining. And then we asked like the doctor, like, can we just um, open the door and like uh, be close to each other? But it was early. So they didn't know what was going on to go. No, you should stay in your room separate from them. And then they should stay in their room separate from the rest of the world. And I was like, well, how long do we have to do this? And then they said, you have to wait until 20, was it 14 days from the last positive result. So I had been in that room for seven days already, but they tested positive uh, seven days later. So a total of 21 days we're living in this situation where we're separate from each other because they're worried I might reinfect them, they might reinfect me. And at the end of it, all I wanted to do is hang out with my daughter again and hang out with Jen again and go for a walk and just be in the same place together. So it's understandable that these lepers, once they are healed, they're not turning back to this in-between desert village. They want to go see their family. They want to go see their kids. But the Samaritan doesn't know this. He is not like them. He doesn't have Levitical logic in his bones, and he doesn't know any better. 
And maybe as a non-Jew, he's worried, if I go to this Jewish priest, who knows how he's going to treat me or what he's going to do. And after he's healed, he skips all of the necessary sacrifices and instead offers up a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Now, it's strange because Leviticus does have a sacrifice of thanksgiving and is different from the guilt offering or the sin offering or the burnt offering in two specific ways. The first is you're supposed to bring meat and burn it. And the first three, the priest either keeps it or all of the meat is burned. But in the offering of thanksgiving, you get to keep some of the meat. You get to eat it. You get to fellowship. You get to have a meal together. And this is emphasized because in this offering of thanks, you also bring two pieces of bread. And this bread is something you're supposed to eat on that very day because it's not just about getting your old life back. It's about having fellowship with God. Now, in Leviticus, giving thanks after you're healed of leprosy is not a requirement. You don't have to do it. The emphasis is on getting your old life back. But not knowing any better, the Samaritan turns back, goes to Jesus and says, thank you for all that you've done for me. It's not enough to be made right with God in some cosmic way. He wanted to be face-to-face with the person who had healed him. Now, how is it that the Samaritan is able to skip all the sacrifices and give God a sacrifice of praise instead? There's one small clue in verse 11, and it says, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, going towards Jerusalem is code for going towards the cross. And if you think about what happened on the cross, you realize something profound. The skin on Jesus' back had been opened up with lashes from a whip. The pores on his forehead were opened up with a crown of thorns. His wrists and feet were opened by nails. And the inside blood that is in him was spilled out because of a spear in his side. And what you see is that on the cross, Jesus had become a leper whose skin was opened up for us. He had become the guilt offering, the sin offering, and the burnt offering. And that is the logic that undergirds the Samaritan. He can now skip all this stuff because he realizes Jesus is the one who made this healing possible. And all he wants to do is say thank you. Now, in the previous passage, we saw Jesus talking about the world as it should be. A master is a master, and he never dines with his servants. But in this story, we see that Jesus challenges it in the example that he sets. He does something that no master should do. He offers his own life for the sake of his servants and invites them to have a meal with them. And through the Samaritan leper, I think we discover the true definition of gratitude. Jesus has done something he was not supposed to do. And we thank him not because we can pay him back, but because we can't. And he knew that we had nothing to offer him in return, but he did it for us anyway. And through this, all the violations that we've ever done have been made right. And the only thing that's left is to say, thank you. And thank you does something powerful for the Samaritan. It gives him a better life than the life that he had before. Um, As I was thinking about this, there's a clip that's been circulating recently of a guy named Herbie Hancock. And he's a piano player. And he played uh, piano for Miles Davis. And he's talking about how one time he was at a concert And they were all getting along really well, playing this wonderful song. And all of a sudden, in the middle of it, he hits this wrong chord, like um, Peter did last week, looking for the F sharp. (laughs) And he hit it, and everybody in the band stopped and went, oh, because you could tell there was something wrong. But Miles Davis, a brilliant uh, trumpeter, was so skilled, he was able to take that wrong note, 
fiddle around with some other notes and make that mistake something better than what it had been before. He covered up this guy's mistake, elevated the song to a new level, and gave us a song that was better than what we had before. And this is the same thing with gratitude. When we're able to say thank you, we're able to come back not just to the life that we had, but experience something deeper, something better. It's not just about, God, I can't wait till COVID is over so that I can go back to the way things were. It's about recognizing that God has done something even better for us. So, in conclusion, um, the last three years, I think, have been pretty difficult and marked with hardship. And when you think back about the early times of COVID, you realize just how uncertain things were. Um, Jen is watching the morning show on Apple, and that show is starting to cover the early stages of COVID. And she remembers, like, that first week when work started shutting down, everyone was kind of panicked. So one thing she did is she drove, I think, like an hour and a half north to some, like, um, Home Depot looking for N95 masks. And she called ahead and called ahead, and she goes, okay, do you have it, you have it, you have it? So she gets there, and as she's walking down the aisle, her and another dude uh, make eye contact at the last pair of masks. And then they look at each other, and then they're like, (laughs) what's going to happen here? And I think the guy was like, okay, I already got one from somewhere else. Why don't you take it? But you didn't know what was going to happen in that scenario. If you look historically, um, epidemics have been disastrous. Uh, The Black Death in the 14th century killed a half to a third of people. The 1918 pandemic killed uh, people in their 20s and 30s. And you didn't know that that was going to happen. And over the last couple of years, a lot of us have experienced loss. A lot of us have experienced isolation. We've gone through panic attacks, anxiety, exhaustion. And even churches have started to close because they're suffering with all of this weight. And the first few weeks were scary. And while we want to acknowledge all that that's happened in the last couple of years, um, we're still here. And this church is still here. And when you think about all of the junk that's happened in the past couple of years, Jesus has been kinder to us than he needed to be. He didn't need to keep us here. He didn't need to keep this church here. He didn't need to keep our community together. But he did that. And by doing that, it raises a question who are we? What kind of church are we? Are we like the nine whose only hope and desire is, I just hope we can go back to the way things were? Or are we like the one who realizes, God, you've been so good to us and you didn't have to be. And do we turn around and go back to that desert place and say, God, thank you for watching over us. Thank you for keeping this church going. Thank you for being kinder to us than we deserved. Let's pray. It's hard because um, there's so much pressure to keep moving. Uh, But if you have not stopped yet to say thank you, um, you're missing out. This Samaritan leper was able to experience something greater and more powerful than his old life. He was able to experience the face of his Savior and see where this kindness came from. Uh, I just want to give you a couple minutes um, just to work on your gratitude and say, God, these are the ways that you've done more than I deserve over the last couple years. Thank you for all that you've done. And uh, after we do that, I think we'll go into a time of communion.